What a strange, what a strange reading. Is it designed to make us feel bad because we're not proper disciples? Seems to be, doesn't it? Like, I don't want to be homeless. I worked kind of as hard as I could to make sure I'm not. And, and I don't want to abandon my familial responsibilities. I don't want to do those things. So we, we seem to only have two choices. We can either take these things as direct instructions to the, for discipleship, and, and some people have. St. Francis of Assisi, of course, is one of the great exemplars. Um, and the whole religious movement, particularly within the Catholic and Anglican Church, where people choose to become um, monks and nuns and, and take vows of chastity, poverty and obedience. All probably pretty good things, but I'm not good at any of them. And, you know, it's not interested. It, I, so what do we do? If we're not that, then do we just sort of pass over these readings with a bit of embarrassment? I'm not really a proper... Christian, and because I'm not willing to wander the hills of Galilee in a pair of sandals, and I'm not willing to do the things that this seems to be pointing me to. Does that mean I just have to recognise myself as second class, as a, as not a real committed Christian? Well, yeah, that's often the way we talk, talk about it. But of course, there are other ways we could look at it. One of them is that, that well, the first thing to, to remember is that when when there's a lot of repetition in the Bible. Uh, as there is here, there's three little bits, little vignettes, um, that uh, where two people want to become disciples and one person is called to be a disciple. Um, it's part of the, an ancient writing style of, that we, we still use, um, of what's often called parallelism, parallelism or it's just basically repetition. If you repeat something, but slightly differently, the Psalms are full of it, you're, making, you're giving something emphasis. So there's something going on here that this is wanting to emphasise something and expand it. And of course, it's full of hyperbole. Jesus and the first century um, uh, speakers, rhetoricians and and others uh, loved hyperbole. If your eye causes you a problem, tear it out. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. I wish those who want you to undergo circumcision, Paul says in Galatians, I wish they would go and castrate themselves. The Bible's full of hyperbole, as is all first century writing. And we understand that hyperbole is telling us, no, it's not exaggeration. To exaggerate is to, for, for example, if I tell you I've got five If I've got five pieces of homework to do tonight, but I tell you I've got ten, I'm exaggerating. But if I tell you I've got a thousand pieces of homework to do, you know that I'm using a hyperbole to tell you I'm really stressed. I'm really worried about this. I'm not, I don't think I'm going to manage it. We understand hyperbole even today, even if we don't use it in quite as um, violent a way as it's used here. I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere. These texts expose our deep fears. We don't want to be spiritually or physically homeless. We will do anything to avoid being exposed 
in front of other people. We will do anything to not experience aloneness. Some of us will live in inappropriate and sometimes abusive relationships in order not to be alone. Some of us will spend years in dull and meaningless jobs in order not to feel disenfranchised and unaccepted in community. Some of us will be so concerned about the fear of unknown that we will stick rigidly to fundamentalist beliefs about all kinds of things within religion, within politics, within culture. Because we're frightened. We're frightened of being, as Jesus says, the one who has nowhere to lay his head. We're frightened of how uncertain the world is. When Jesus calls himself Son of Man, the other translation for that is the human one. Jesus is saying, me, I'm talking about myself, but I'm talking about all of us. At the final analysis, none of us have anywhere to lay our heads. We don't want to be exposed to that. We don't want to even expose ourselves to it. The world is a deep and strange mystery. There's a wonderful new artwork, if you get a chance to see it, Lot 14, the old Royal Adelaide Hospital site on North Terrace, now has a new artwork by a young um, South Australian artist. It's called One, and it's a huge um, metal sphere, no, not a sphere, just circle, um, and, it, it, and 5% of the circle is lit up. You've got to go and have a look at it. It's just wonderful. 5% of the circle is lit up. It's a huge thing. And that 5%, it represents the 5% of the universe we know and have some understanding of. The rest of it is total mystery to us. Another said, to another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. He didn't say, let me go and take care of the family business and then bury the next person who dies. But my father, the father in Roman and Greek culture was, as the Romans called it, the paterfamilias. The father was the be-all and end-all of family. The, the father had the right to do anything the father wanted to do with those who were in the father's care. Even to the point of murder. You could kill somebody in Roman law if you were the paterfamilias, and there would be no repercussions. It was your decision because you presumably had a need to do that to, in order for the family to progress or to not fall apart or whatever. No questions asked. So it was the power of life and death. And there was always a paterfamilias because, as many of you know, my dad just died and I'm the paterfamilias now in my family. They're not going to listen to me to have the power of life and death. They don't listen to me about anything. But I'm the, I'm the next one. I'm the oldest one left in my family. That's, so there always is a pattern from this. So there's always an ongoing process of, being, of, of having a system, of being in control. But Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Jesus says, it's just a construct. We give life meaning by constructing these things, but they're just constructs. They're no, they're no more real than the meaning we give them. 
And just because there was the paterfamilias, that one died, and now you're the paterfamilias, then you died, then there'll be another one. That construct, the, the structures that we give life, they're no more meaning than we give them. And, and if we get them questioned, we start to really panic. It's happened, talking about my dad, it happened to my dad many years ago. He was working uh, in the government um, in what was then the Department of, Department of Community Welfare, and he got sick of it. And so he and my mum decided to quit. They bought a block of land down at Middleton, you know, near Victor Harbour, and they decided they're going to build a house themselves. Well, they did. And what my dad discovered, though, as he was leaving his job, that lots of his colleagues were angry with him. And it took him a while to figure out why they were angry, because he was putting the lie to the fact that everybody would love to do this, just give it all up and do something else. But you can't because we've got all these responsibilities and we've got all... It turns out you can because he did. And that puts the lie to the thing that it's much easier to say, oh, wouldn't it be great if we did or wouldn't it be great if we did this or that or the other. When then when someone does it, it pricks a hole in the fact that you can't do it. And so people were angry with my dad because he proved the lie that the structures that we've built aren't as permanent as we think they are. We're frightened to live without those structures that we've built. First, let me go and bury my father. Jesus, that's all. That's all. God, that's rubbish. It's not true. Sure, we need structures. But there's a difference between a structure that we work with and a structure that becomes the centre and purpose and meaning of life. That's all there is. I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom. It's our possessions, our education, our status, our family relationships. These are the things out of which we build ourselves. This is who I am. If you ever spent much time in Canberra, nobody asks you in Canberra, what do you do for a living? They ask you what classification you are in the federal government because I was presumed that's where you work. This is who I am. This is how I built myself. You know, I thought about the clothes I was going to put on today. Um, when, when I worked at Clayton Wesley, um, as you know, the church down in Beulah Park where I was for 10 years, I wore a dress. Oh, you know, the stole and the whole thing. So I didn't have to think about what I was wearing. I'd just throw on anything because, you know, I'd be wearing the dress. And in the summer, you know, you could just wear a T-shirt and... But and I think, well, if I come here, I, I'm not going to wear my dress. Um, what, what should I wear to not look? I don't want to look really sophisticated, because that's not going to work, because I'm not. But I don't want to dress like a bum either. You know, so you have to think about it, because I'm constantly building myself out of the stuff I've got, out of my education, such as it is, out of my uh, income, such as it is, out of my uh, friendship relationships, out of my past, the things I've done. I'm building myself constantly, and even out of the clothes that I pull out of my wardrobe that aren't too creased and, you know, that are clean and all of that. Those are the things we build ourselves with and we think those are the things that make us who we are. One of the horrors of watching the war unfold in Ukraine is to notice that ordinary people who, like us, have built themselves up, suddenly everything is gone. I remember reading recently um, of a man in, in, the, in, the, um, in Syria 
who had lived in this city all his life, and it was so bombed that he couldn't figure out where he was. He couldn't. There were no um, landmarks that he could orientate to, and it very deeply confused him because he he thought he knew his city, but it was so totally destroyed. That must be happening in the Ukraine. It eradicates who a person is. Doesn't matter how rich you are when the bombs come. Doesn't matter how sophisticated you are. It doesn't matter how well known you are. None of those things matter. It's all gone. And that's a terrible fear that we all have. Being unknown. Being unrecognised for what we've done and who we are. This long history of, of mythical stories, fairy tales, of kings and famous people who suddenly have amnesia and lose all sense of who they really are. And of course, if they're a good fairy story, they end with suddenly um, it all coming back and they rediscover, I really am a king or a queen or a prince. All these three things, the great fear is not being in control, not having a system that works for us to be in control. They go straight to our great fear. Whether we're Xi Jinping or Putin trying to manipulate the world to suit us and in order, and in, and in doing so do enormous damage. Or whether we're the abusive person who needs to be in control and the only way to do it is to be cynical or put other people down or physically be abusive. Or the desperate need we have to hang on to our stuff. (laughs) Nola and I were talking about this this morning. It's really hard to go through your stuff and get rid of it because it's not just stuff. It's We've built ourselves up out of it. it. It's a bit of who we are. And so it's an extraordinary process to go through. A good one. Because when you die, somebody's just going to take it all to the op shop. You know that, don't you? (laughs) And that's fine because then somebody else will enjoy it. But the process of, of letting it go. It's the great fear of old age, isn't it? That there will come a time, if we're unlucky, when I am no longer able to make the decisions about myself that I want to make, that I'm so used to making. This is why the disciples want to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans. Because the Samaritans represent the great fear of the Jews. They're like us, but they're not like us. And they live over there and they do things differently. But if there's only one way to do things, you can't do things differently. You can only do things wrong. And there was only one way to do it for the Jews. They would go, if they crossed... We haven't got a map, but if you look at a map of, of ancient Palestine, the Jews to go from Galilee down to Jerusalem, so from the north to the south, would usually go out of their way to go around Samaritan territory. Because they're the great fear. They're something that nobody wants to have anything to do with. So the best way to deal with things that are wrong is to attack them, kill them, get rid of them. The best way to deal with uncertainty is to have fundamentals. The best way to deal with ambiguity is to just wipe it out and say, this is the way it is. We see this all the time at the moment with issues around transgender people in sport. Such a complex issue. But there are still people who are thinking, what is even, what is a transgender person? I thought there were men. 
And they were women. It's so complicated. Well, it shouldn't be complicated. It should be straightforward. There are men and there are women. Shut up. That's all there is. And don't you, don't you feel a bit of a desire to kind of go there? God, wouldn't life be better if it was just simpler? If we had less decisions that we had to make? Less things we had to think about? What do you mean I have to think about the pronouns that a person would, require, would ask me to use in referring to them? I'm exhausted. I can barely figure out which of the pumps in the gas station to pull out to stick in my car. Which button to press when I go to the toilet? I mean, everywhere, everywhere is decision making, isn't it? It's exhausting. The Samaritans represent all of that. So the best way to deal with it is just to kill it off. Bring down fire from it. And this is what Elijah did. We've got precedents. The great Elijah, he did that. We should do the same. And we've got a whole world of social media telling us that. Driven by a fear of, of things being questioned, of being wrong, of being irrelevant. We're driven by fear. And you know what? All the way through the Gospel of Luke, our Gospel for the rest of this year, are the words, do not be afraid. Well, you never need to hear, do not be afraid, unless you're afraid. Unless we're deeply driven by fear. And it comes over and over again in Luke. Well, why not be afraid? Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard. You are not alone. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. We are known. Do not be afraid, for see, I'm bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. For you today is born in the city of David a Saviour who is the Messiah, the Lord. The longed for Messiah. What is longed for in Judaism at this time is, is a Messiah. Whatever it is that you long for. What is it's born in us? At where at the very heart of who we are, the city of David was the heart of Judaism. Do not be afraid. No one who puts their hand to the plough is fit to be uh, who look put their hands to the plough and looks back is fit fit for the kingdom of God. Doesn't mean you're not in it, just not fit for it. You know, any idiot can join up for the city to Bay Run. And lots of idiots do. <laughs> and some of them don't make it. It doesn't matter. You can get it. But wouldn't it be good to be fit for it? Wouldn't it be good, be good not to live crippled by fear? Not to be weighed down by so many things that we're so fearful of and concerned for? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. It's all the way through. Do not be afraid. Because you're not alone. You are known. You have found, this is insane, but you, you have found favour with God. I know you don't think you have. I know you know all the reasons why you haven't. As I, I'm just reading the Bible. It's not my, I didn't make this up. You have found favour with God. Wow. That'll do, won't it? Let's stop there. <laughs>